you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse number 1. Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, will be our preaching text for this morning. We are just out of the last few weeks focused on Hebrews, chapter 11. And that chronicle of those saints of the Old Testament who exercised faith in God and through whom God worked to do incredible things. The primary point being made in Hebrews chapter 11 is that faith is active in our lives. What James says plainly in the book of James, faith without works is dead. The preacher of Hebrews says by illustration or example, saving faith moves the believer to action. The course of our life is shaped by it is changed by our belief in God's favor over us, in his willingness and his ability to see through every promise made. With those examples now before us, that great cloud of witness, we are called into an experience that is to run parallel to theirs. We're called to run what is described here as the race of faith well. Exercising faith in the same God, we are to run well the course that has been set before us. If you are a runner or have been a runner at some point in your life, this is your time to shine. Because all of the examples that are cited in the passage that we're going to be reading this morning will resonate well with you. Our journey with Jesus is likened to a race. In fact, we might go beyond that and say, a long race, perhaps even a marathon. And the call of these 12 verses is that we would run our race well, that we would not quit mid-race, that we would run with stamina, that we would run with integrity and nobility, that at the end of our race, we would hear from the master, well done, thy good and faithful servant. servant. Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in verse 1, if you would join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. In struggling against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father doesn't discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are three instructions for us in these 12 verses that are to assist us, to help us, to aid us in running well the course that has been set before us. Two of those are found in verse number one. Here the Bible says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. A reference to those heroes of the faith whose stories are told in summary in Hebrews chapter 11. In light of their example, in light of the compelling work of God in their experience, exercising faith, given all that God did, all that you know by their testimony, by their experience, be encouraged by this cloud of witnesses. Mark Twain once said there's few things more annoying than a good example. And when an example is cited at the wrong time and under the wrong circumstances, it can be quite an annoyance. But good examples can be quite useful as well. If there's something that you take special delight in, something that you really enjoy, if you have a hobby or a sport that you're especially fascinated with or have a great appeal for and attraction to, you will tend to look to those who have excelled in that particular area, who through the discipline of training and the discipline of their body have exercised themselves into such a condition that they're able to perform this particular task at a standard of excellence. And you're motivated by their example, right? As a boy, as interest would evolve over time. Whatever the interest of the day was, I was fascinated with. And, and, and those who excelled in those areas quickly became heroes to me. The same might be said of our journey with Jesus. Not only do we have those saints of the Bible to look to as examples, but nearer our cultural experience, it is a good thing to have additional heroes that we can model after or look to as exemplary. Maybe you're fortunate enough to have those kinds of people in your life. I encourage pastors and others in vocational ministry to find some dead men and women that they can look to whose cultural experiences are closer to theirs. I encourage them toward dead men and women because they won't disappoint you. Their race is finished. You can find encouragement from their ministries and the way God showed up. I find that missionary autobiographies and biographies are devotional to me. They are nourishment for my soul to hear how God has worked and moved in circumstances that are very similar to my own hand of God has not been shortened that he cannot save. The same faith that moved mountains in the days of the Bible moves mountains in our time when exercised under the leadership of God's Holy Spirit. This is the very kind of thing the preacher has in view here in verse 1 when he says, since we have such a large or great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. This is instruction number one. If you want to run the course set before you, if you want to run the race of faith well, instruction number one is to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Before I came to be your pastor, I used to run. I say that in such a way as to blame you all for my unwillingness to be disciplined in recent days. Did you catch that? I still make an effort at running from time to time, although that looks different with my new schedule and all of the obligations that I bear, not just as pastor here. It's really more about the place where my family is. My boys are old enough. They have enough activities to keep me busy enough that I don't have time for my own activities, and that's okay. That season will likewise pass, but I do from time to time still try to run. And I almost always know how the run is going to go, not on the basis of what the weather looks like, how hot or how cold it is, whether it's sunny or rainy, how I feel that day. Not, none of those kinds of variables really determine for me how the run is going to go. I don't know by the weather or my feeling that day. I usually know by the reading on my bathroom scale. That's how I know how the run is going to go. It is amazing to me how little weight can influence so substantially my ability to run the course assigned for that given day. And the race of faith is no different. Just a little weight, just a dab of the sin that so easily ensnares us can greatly hinder our ability to run well the race of faith that has been set before us. In order to run well, you're going to have to rid yourself of any extra weight, any sin that you're harboring in your heart. It all stands to beset you in this journey with Jesus. It's not just ridding yourself in a moment either. You can, for a moment, rid yourself of certain weight, but if you've run or know people who run or have observed those who run, You've noticed that they didn't just get up on that day and determine, I'm going to run this race. They have developed a game plan. They have disciplined themselves. They have oriented their life around this singular goal to run this race and to run this race well. What they do in terms of exercise outside of running will dictate their success in the race. What they eat, their, their diet, their game plan with regards to hydration and nutrition will contribute substantially to their ability to running that race. They have rid themselves of all of the excess baggage, not just the weight, but other worldly entanglements that don't contribute to their ability to run this particular race and to run it with efficiency and effectiveness and with speed. You're going to have to rid yourself of such things if you're going to enjoy the success that is potentially set before us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Remember this message of perseverance. It's looming large over the book of Hebrews, and it's a considerable point of emphasis here in these 12 verses. Don't stop and don't quit is, in essence, the message of, of these verses. We've talked about at a number of points along the way in our study of Hebrews 
the distance that exists between us and those Hebrew Christians in the first century, in that our experience is one of comfort and affluence, but their experience was one of real persecution. The threat of bodily harm, the threat of being the outcast was real for them. And in some cases, it was more than a threat. It was their reality. There's a great deal of distance that exists between us and them in that regard. And we've lamented the difficulty of our experience in that our faith is not tested in that way. We can be presumptuous as to our ability to stand fast and faithful under those circumstances. But there's another area where our experiences are very, very close. A way that's perhaps even more powerful, even more besetting than the presence of persecution. N note that we don't have in view in this command the notion of persecution or the threat of any physical harm. The concern here for the preacher is the presence of sin. Long before persecution ever besets you in your race of faith, long before you're ever tempted, to withdraw from the race in fear that some physical harm or damage be done to you or your family. It's the abiding presence of sin in us that stands to turn us back in the race of faith. I am more convinced today than I have ever been before that objections to the gospel of Jesus Christ are not objective at all. They're not philosophical. They're not intellectual. They're ethical. The bottom line is Jesus doesn't want me to do the things that I want to do, so I will reject him out of hand. Or I'll do the dangerous, sick, sinful, evil, wicked thing that many churches and many Christians have turned to. I'll develop something that looks like the gospel that affords me the freedoms to do all of these ungodly things that I desire to do, and I'll stamp gospel on it somewhere. Brothers and sisters, long before persecution ever stands to turn us back, the abiding presence of sin, its tendency to entangle and ensnare, will be the besetting factor for us if we don't persevere in the race of faith. Resist sin. Resist sin. Before unbelief and doubt begins to enter in, there's always this prevailing, trifling, toying around with the presence of sin. Resist it. Resist it. Resist it. You realize there, there are two ways that you can bring temptation, the weight of temptation to a conclusion. You can either persevere through it and pray that God would grant deliverance. And in that case, you will experience the heights of severity in temptation. Or you can just succumb. And it, and it may be easier in the moment to just succumb to the temptation. But in due time, you'll reap the whirlwind. This, this is the danger for us, right? No one's knocking on doors in our neighborhoods threatening us because of our faith in Jesus. There's not a soul in this building that drove to this place, Mackinvale and by Helia today, concerned that someone would show up and hold us captive for our faith in Jesus. But oh, the, the scores of people who came harboring iniquity in their heart, toying around with the presence of sin, living one life publicly and another life altogether in private. Now, I want you to know this morning that that private sin, 
what you harbor in your heart is a far greater danger to your faith in Jesus than persecution ever has been or ever will be. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us that we run the race of faith and run it well. There's a second command even in verse number one. Not only are we called to lay aside every weight, we're challenged further in the last sentence there that we would run with endurance the race that lies before us it seems simple enough run with endurance don't give up don't quit don't stop if you're familiar with running at all in my mind i have a picture of the high school cross-country experience that we've had within our own family, maybe many of you've had as well, and what, what you'll see there, and this is pretty common in the racing or running world, especially when there are children running, parents will position themselves along the course. At that place, they anticipate their son or daughter, coaches will do the same, they'll position themselves at that point in the race where they anticipate their runner will be on the verge of giving up. Just before that last distance run, maybe a long flat or maybe a great incline, when things get as difficult as they will be in the race, they'll position themselves there in order to encourage them, to coach them, to goad them on, that they would finish well in spite of the pain and the agony of the moment. You can make it. Don't give up. Press. They might have judged their discipline in running. They might know the runner well enough to know that point in time in the race where they're able to turn it on and give all that they have to the finish line and survive that experience. And they're there running alongside saying, don't quit, don't give up, press on, finish and finish well. The preacher here has positioned himself at just that place in the life of his congregation. At this critical juncture in their experience where so many are on the verge of quitting, of giving up, the preacher is there at their side goading and encouraging them that they would run and run well, finish and finish hard. Don't quit, don't quit, don't give up. It's my prayer, brothers and sisters, that God, that Christ would position himself race side that he'd find some of you here this morning at that critical juncture in your race of faith on the verge of giving up and whisper by the still small voice of his spirit, don't quit, don't give up, don't stop running. This last distance is all there is. You can make it. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. But that's not all he says. He continues in verse 2. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Keep looking at Jesus. Run hard. and Run with endurance. Look at Jesus. Even those that don't run are familiar with this phenomenon wherein Looking to the finish line can be a helpful motivation in finishing the race. Before we moved, I always ran on the parkway that was very near our home. 
There was a long, flat stretch that you would start out on, and consequently, when you turned around and came back, there would be a long, flat stretch to finish on. If you know running, long, flat stretches are nice. I always parked around a little curve, sort of hide my truck when I, went, when I, when I came off of that long stretch, and, and so for about three quarters of a mile, I could see where I had parked, and then I would turn and go out of sight. So coming back, coming down a little incline, which was nice before the long, flat stretch, I was almost ready to quit, and each time I would turn the corner and I could see the finish line. There is something about the ability to see the finish line that provides this surge of adrenaline and optimism that in spite of the pain and agony of the moment, I just might make it after all. But that can have the opposite effect as well, because that surge of adrenaline might last a tenth or two tenths or a quarter of a mile, but it soon goes away. There's almost this oasis in the desert experience where that finish line that you've been looking to as a source of motivation seems like it's just not getting as close as it really ought to be. And you begin to make judgment in your mind. Well, I can see the finish line. Doesn't that count? If I stop now, can I mark the box on this day as an achievement? Have I, have I crossed off this obligation I've established for myself in running this distance on this day? And the only thing that can really motivate you in that moment, especially for a box checker like me, like I del- if I can check a box, it makes my day, right? The only thing that can motivate me was beyond the finish line and the ability to live the rest of that day knowing that I had accomplished what I set out on that day to accomplish. What the preacher invites us to do here in verse 2 is to look not to the finish line, but beyond the finish line to the reward for our race of faith. The nail-scarred hands of Jesus that embrace us on that day Suggestion here is not that Jesus is our reward for running well. You don't get grace from God because you run the race. In fact, the only way you can run the race is by the grace of God. The preacher is careful to note here that Jesus is the source of our faith. Salvation comes by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That faith is the gift of God. God gives us faith. The source of faith is Jesus. Furthermore, he's perfecting that faith in us, shaping and molding and making us into the likeness of God's only son, Jesus Christ, by the difficulties, the obstacles, and even the high moments in our race of faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus to the reward that awaits us. Brothers and sisters, the best thing about the end of this life and the best thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. Keep your eyes fixed there just beyond the finish line and run the race set before us with great endurance. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on the prize. Notice all that is said about Jesus in our passage. Not only that he is the source and perfecter of our faith, but that in an an exemplary way, in a way that establishes a pattern for us, like those examples in Hebrews 11, for the joy that lay before him, he endured a cross and despised the shame 
before sitting down at the right hand of God's throne. It's not just that Jesus provides for us an example here whereby we might live. He does indeed do that. But so much more than an example. In fact, if we want to keep with the theme of our sermon series, we might say Jesus is better than an example. Yes, his life and his death are exemplary. But Jesus dies as more than a martyr, more than an example. Jesus dies for us vicariously as our substitute on the cross. The joy that was set before Jesus was our salvation. That's the joy that moves him to go to Calvary's tree. Jesus looks toward the cross with great dread. The Gospels tell us this. He prayed the day before, God, if there's a way, remove this bitter cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In spite of all of his fear, Jesus would embrace death for the joy that was set before him. And you and I, by faith, are bound up in that joy. Positioned at the right hand of God's throne. Seated in glory and great power. Now listen to what verse 3 says. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. This is the second time the preacher of Hebrews has said this. He said it first in Hebrews chapter 3 and he encouraged us that we should consider Jesus. And he commends considering Jesus as one of the most helpful tools in persevering, in not turning back, in staying the course. And here within the context of this race discussion, he says again, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. No action item, no list of things we need to do. Just think about Jesus. I would encourage you to, to mix and mingle with your prayer life as you are voicing your needs, your petitions, your concerns to the Father, that you would uh, budget time, that you would afford yourself the time to simply sit quietly and contemplate the goodness of God toward us in his Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that this is the secret to perseverance. Considering all that God has done for us in his Son, Jesus, meditating quietly, quiet contemplation of the goodness of God in his Son, Jesus hold you fast against that day and you won't grow weary and lose heart think of his suffering for you think of the mercy and the grace that you enjoy how lavishly he's bestowed forgiveness and mercy upon us and in doing so you'll find stamina and strength that surge of spiritual adrenaline that allows you to press through the next obstacle on toward the finish line Verse 4, the Bible says, in struggling against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You've not yet come under persecution so much that you have let blood. Or perhaps you have not given yourself to disciplining your body to the point of letting blood in a way that an athlete or a soldier or a farmer might discipline himself about his work you have not disciplined yourself to this extreme point of resistance to sin up until now. That day may come. Persecution and temptation may come to that extreme or to that extent. 
but you've not gotten there yet. In other words, it's not as bad as it could be. Thank God the same could be said for us. Verse 5, he further notes that you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And then he cites Job chapter 5. That's interesting for a number of reasons. The quote is as follows. My son, don't take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Here the preacher casts our suffering as an act of discipline from God, which is okay, right? As long as suffering comes as a result of our sin or poor decision making. But what of those instances when suffering, when pain, when anguish comes, no fault of our own? What are those circumstances when it's beyond our control and the heartbreak and the heartache come? Verse 7 helps us there. Here the Bible says, endure suffering as a discipline. That's kind of a generic statement, but I take the spirit of that statement in the context of these 12 verses to indicate this. We are called upon to regard suffering, no matter what form it takes, or what has brought this experience about in our life, as a discipline. In other words, whether it's the consequence of our sin or circumstances that are beyond our control that bring about suffering, it is a reasonable and healthy thing that we would ask at the beginning and for the duration of that season of our life how it is that God is training us or what it is that God is teaching us. Regard suffering as discipline. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that it was interesting that the preacher cites the book of Job. Job provides us with a great example of this very principle. The Bible says in Job 1 and 2, not once, but multiple times, that Job was blameless and upright, that he feared God and shunned evil. And in spite of that assessment, an assessment, an evaluation that God makes, not man. God said Job is blameless and upright. In spite of all of that, great calamity befalls Job. What we find by the end of the book of Job, a conclusion that most never arrive at, is that in spite of Job's goodness, in spite of that evaluation from God, blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil, that there remained for Job in his humanity a sediment of pride and sin that could only be sifted when shaken by calamity, loss, and suffering. Brothers and sisters, the harsh reality of our broken and depraved existence is that even in those of us about whom it might be said good and faithful and just, blameless and upright, there remains in us a sediment of sin and pride that can only be sifted when we are shaken by calamity and suffering and loss and often great tragedy. Regard suffering as discipline, no matter its source, whether it be within your control or out of your control. Ask the tough question, what is God teaching or training me in this moment? What does God seek to teach me through this season? And even when I cannot trace the work of his hand, I will trust his goodness over all my life. Endure suffering as discipline, the Bible says. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? 
But if you're without discipline, which all receive, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you catch what the Bible's saying here? The presence of discipline in our life as a response from God for our sin should not be debilitating to us in our faith. Rather, it functions to affirm our faith. If you are happy-go-lucky in your worldly ways, if, if you have ceased to be troubled by the presence of sin in your life, that ought to make you afraid. But if God is haunting you by the Spirit in conviction, if your heart is ever broken over the abiding presence of sin in your life, if you are riddled, ridden, riddled with burden and doubt and hurt over things that you have done, that's evidence of God's work. You are a legitimate child. It's not that Christians don't sin. It's just that God has removed the ability to do that without being so sorely troubled by His Holy Spirit. In this sense, discipline functions to affirm our faith. Look at verse 9. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. God is refining us through the sufferings of the present age and hour. Whether, again, it's the product of, of your sin or circumstances beyond your control. Let's just poll for a moment. Well, let's, do a, let's do a literal show of hands survey of the congregation. How many of you have been influenced positively in your walk with Jesus? Either you came to faith in Jesus or you've grown in grace in Jesus because of pain and suffering. Show of hands. You see? Do you see? And it's just the product of how stubborn and bullheaded we are. The blinding effect of sin until brought to our knees the scales seem to stay. Our hearts are calloused and we just cannot see. Regard suffering as discipline. And trust that in this, God is shaping and molding and making us into the likeness and image of his only son. You'll, you'll despair if the end goal for you is satisfaction and fulfillment. But if the end goal for you is to be more like Jesus, you'll find the capacity to delight even in the most difficult of days. Look at verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is a necessary part of our ability to move forward. If you run or you have run, you're, you're familiar with that intense and sometimes sharp pain in your legs after a long run and nearing the end of your course that particular day. It feels as though the vessels in your legs are going to burst. And scientists tell us that something very close to the bursting of your vessels is precisely what is unfolding in your members. Your body is forcing blood to areas to provide oxygen to muscles that have not been exercised to that extreme in a long time. 
Your vessels do not possess the capacity to move blood and to move oxygen to those areas at the rate at which those muscles need blood and oxygen over that length of time. And so as those vessels expand and they hurt and feel as though they're going to burst under that pressure, what's happening is your body is building smaller capillaries in order to fuel those muscles and provide them with oxygen in ways that exceed the day before. It is quite literally that the pain that you endure in the last laps of your run are quite literally making your body better in order to have the ability to finish the race on the next day or the next day or the next day. That pain, that agony, that feeling as though your muscles will burst is the guarantee of your ability to do it better the next round than you've ever done it before. Suffering. Regarded as discipline, functions the same way for us. As we grow in grace, appreciation and understanding of God's mercy toward us, under the pressure of pain and duress, it's refining us. It has a refining, sanctifying effect that readies us for the next season of hardship and difficulty that may indeed find its way around. Look at verse 12. This verse functions as a summary of everything that's been said so far. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Here you are at this critical juncture in your life, making decisions about whether to continue the race or to quit altogether. There are in this congregation those who've been coming perhaps for weeks, maybe even months, and you've been hearing the message of the gospel. You've been having conversations with those around. Maybe you've believed on some level, but you have not yet entrusted your soul to Jesus fully. There's something frightful about the idea of turning away from the things of this world and, and embracing Jesus in full faith. The call of the passage is, Press on to persevere, to believe, and to trust in him. Never look back. There are some of you who've been walking with Jesus for some time. You regard yourselves as faithful believers, but things have begin, begun to unfold in your life. Maybe you've given yourself over to sin. You've been playing games with the things of this world, believing that somehow you'd manage this balance of a, a socially acceptable dose of Christianity without making you so much alien in this world. And you've believed, you've convinced yourself that you can manage that balance, but things are spiraling out of control and doubt is creeping in and you're now on the cusp of quitting the race altogether. Verse 12 is for you. Strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. Those nagging injuries, those bumps and bruises and strained muscles and inflamed tendons and ligaments that come with running the race repetitively day by day by day. Strengthen those things, bind them up, bandage them, strengthen those tired hands and weaken knees and chart a straight course and run well the race that has been set before you. Persevere, don't give up, don't quit. You know, I think the struggle in all of this is that like temptation, 
there, there are two ways that you can alleviate the suffering of running the race. I said something about running to introduce the sermon in the second service, and, and you had thought, I just said, let's all go jump off the Mississippi River Bridge, right? People looking at me like I was crazy, running. They had bad high school experiences with a coach somewhere along the way, or it didn't end the way they'd hoped it would. There are two ways to bring an end to that misery. You press on and you press through, and you discipline your body to be able to manage the course set before you, or you just quit. And if we're honest with ourselves, well, this is not a matter of honesty as much as common sense. Quitting is a much faster remedy to the pain that you may feel in your side or in your bones. Just quit. Just quit. And you're enticed by that. You're enticed by that. I think the thing for me practically when it comes to physical running that motivates me more than anything else is the fear of getting old and decrepit and incapable of doing the things that I can do today. I will be 40 years old this month. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember, this is a side note, but this is funny. I remember when my daddy turned 30, sitting in my bedroom and writing a list of all the things he had that I hoped to inherit. I figured the time is coming soon. And I'm 10 years past that. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Brother Wade, you run all you want to. You're going to get like me one day. Yeah, but you're going to get there first. <laughs> you can quit. You can quit. You can give up. But you will reap the benefits of your having quit. You will. You give up if you want. The proverb says, there is a way that seems right to a man. And in the moment, quitting feels so good. It is such sweet relief. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Don't you take the bait. There's a hook beneath what appears to be so enticing, so alluring. You quit, and you'll reap the whirlwind. If I, if I found you this morning at that crossroads moment in your journey, hear the words of the preacher, this preacher, and this preacher. Don't give up. Don't put hand to plow and look back. Persevere. Listen, what awaits us in Christ, it, it cannot be compared to the difficulties, the pains, and the sufferings of this world. These experiences are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Run the race well. And may God grant that by faith, at the end of this journey, just beyond the finish line, we can hear the words of the Savior say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. God, I pray that the source of faith would be pleased to grant the gift today. That the perfecter of faith would be pleased to further sanctify and refine his people today. I pray that you would find us at that critical point in our journey with Jesus and coach us on, God. I pray that spiritually speaking, we would feel and sense deeply that surge of adrenaline that gets us over the next obstacle and helps us to persevere through pain and suffering. I pray, God, that you would keep us faithful. Help us to run well the race that has been set before us. Seek out and save to the uttermost, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.